0: Welcome to The Center Church, Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. So if you paid attention to what was read, um, the opening verse, if you've got your Bibles open to Luke 13, you will see Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God is like. And that is not new to us. Uh, we've been steadily unpacking what the kingdom is like right from the outset. Right? And so, Luke is repeatedly drawing our attention to, what? to this good news of the kingdom of God and he's presenting Jesus as a fulfillment of all scripture pointed to in, how, in what he taught and what he did as well. And so when you keep that in mind, and you also remember that right at the outset in Jesus' ministry, it was many weeks or many months back in chapter 4, when Jesus began from Nazareth in 4.43, at the end of the chapter, he said, I must preach, I must share the good news of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. And so Luke has been tracing out for us the journey in a sense. You can read Luke like that. We've been through the Galilean ministry, and we're almost out of it. In fact, now we're headed from there towards Jerusalem. And so when you keep that in mind, you realize these towns that Jesus is going through, they, these are close-knit communities, right? And so by now, uh, if there was maybe a Palestinian daily, Jesus would have made it to the headlines almost every single day, right? And maybe by now, he would have started appearing in that controversial column because what the leaders wanted, what the Pharisees wanted, is, is not the right impression that the crowds would have. They didn't like, they were beginning to oppose his ministry, And so you keep all that in mind and you realize that's the context in which Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. And so it was a significant claim that Jesus was making. The kingdom of God is near. Remember, all the scripture and everything that the Jews had, they were waiting for this moment, right? All the scripture was pointing to Jesus. Even when they were in exile, they were waiting for the promised seed from Abraham's lineage. Who is that king from the lineage of David who would come and deliver us? And now even when Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem, they back, but they, they're still uh, disappointed. These are not the glory days that they expected that Yahweh had promised for them. And so it's in that, uh, that expectation that they're listening to Jesus and following him. And remember, this was also a long waiting period. right? So when we casually flip from the Old Testament to the New, that one little blank page there, we know that is 400 years of silence where the prophets weren't speaking. And so imagine that period where people are waiting. And so at that point in time when Jesus comes and says, The kingdom is here, that is significant. And I don't know if we even realize the significance when we turn our Bibles from, from Malachi and we go to the New Testament. You remember that the first chapter that you see there, Matthew one? Most of us know that by heart. Son of, son of, son of. And we usually skip through that, but we but you see what Matthew's trying to tell us there. See, guys, this is huge. Pedigree mattered to you, lineage mattered to you, to the Jews especially, and the kingdom before the temple was destroyed, you had records, you could trace history back, and he said, we've traced this back, look at this, all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham, the king is here, and the kingdom is here. That's what Luke is doing as well in a sense. He takes off when he opens the gospel from where the last section of the Old Testament in Malachi stops by saying, one will come with the spirit of Elijah, referring to John the Baptist, and that's how he opens the gospel. And John isn't the focus there, but he presents them as a forerunner saying, here's the king that we've been waiting for. And we've seen Luke take us through that from chapter 4 all the way to where we are now in 13, but not just for us. And I don't know how excited you were, but the Jews were in some sort of disappointment. There were mixed emotions. You saw how crowds responded, right? So they listened to all this, and maybe in their hearts they're thinking, saying, okay, all this is true, but this description of the kingdom that we see over here is this really the deliverance that we were waiting for from Roman oppression? And is this, we don't really see, it doesn't even look like a king to be honest. We know who he is. He's that carpenter from Nazareth from that insignificant town. And what is this kingdom all about anyway? When they follow him, they really don't like what he's teaching. They thought it was about their land and their prosperity. And Jesus is saying, no, in fact, the abundance of wealth will not get you into the kingdom. And he says, you, you can't be anxious despite what you see now, and you can't live in hypocrisy, and he's calling out their sin. And so there's, there's this, the hearts that are being stirred, and this is really not what the Jews expected. And even before we dive into the text, um, you need to ask yourself, when you think of this kingdom, now we live in the reality of this kingdom today, that Jesus has already inaugurated. We're waiting for the full consummation. We're living at that period now. How much of this inaugurated kingdom shapes how you and I think and respond today? That's a critical part of this text that we're going to look at, and so as we follow Jesus and you look at this text in the opening verse, this is not just about the nature of the kingdom, but also draws our attention to the one who's inaugurating the kingdom, the one who's speaking, going relentlessly, resolute towards Jerusalem, and there's a the values in the kingdom that he draws our attention to, and depending on how we respond, how we respond, Jesus says you'll either be in the kingdom or you will not. That's what this text is about, and so how we'll walk through this together. Uh, There are three points, uh, and then some sub-points later. But initially, I want us to look at, one, the nature of the kingdom. And then we'll briefly look at the heart of the king. And thirdly, entering the kingdom. So look at the opening verses with me, and look at what Jesus says, the nature of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched on its branches. And then he used another example saying, oh, it's like yeast, a little yeast mixed into a significant amount of dough. You see the point Jesus is making? These were simple parables that people understood at that point in time. It's like a man who took a mustard seed, and the analogy, what the listeners heard at that time was, you take a little grain, and you plant it in your garden, and there were different plants that grew, but the smallest seed that you ever came across was a mustard seed, and some of you have seen it, some of you use it for cooking as well. So you drop it in the soil, in fact, you drop it in the soil, you can't find it. And imagine burying it just a few centimeters below the ground, it looks like it doesn't exist, it's insignificant. And when it begins to sprout, it still doesn't look significant, but soon he says it becomes, don't be dismayed by what you see, this is going to be the biggest tree this nation is going to grow. And I know if you've seen that, I actually witnessed this during COVID when a lot of us do things that we usually don't do. We get our hands a little dirty, but we tried planting a few things and I was surprised the mustard seed was the smallest. I wasn't thinking of the parable, to be honest, but when it grew, it did get my attention. There were, there were tomatoes, there were turnips, there was cabbage, there was radish, some grew, some didn't, but irrespective. This actually was the biggest. And I looked up the net as well and I realized my mustard shrub was actually a poor version of what I think Israel was talking about. Because apparently most of them on an average grew from 6 feet to about 20 feet. It's not a shrub, that's a tree. And so the listeners at that point in time get it. That seed is that tiny, but it's going to be the biggest in your garden. Right? They, they want people living in concrete jungles who don't get their hands dirty. So they got this. But we need a little bit of context, right? And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that's what the kingdom of God is like. And you can see that in scripture when you read Jesus' life in ministry. Think of the first 30 years. It's like the seed almost burrowed under the soil. You don't even know what's going on. But there's something huge that is happening. And even when it begins to sprout, it looks like there's something significant coming up. But then there's mixed reactions. There's, there's miracles that you can't deny. There's powerful teaching. But yet, there's also a lot of opposition happening over here. And Jesus is saying, you know what? This is going to be the biggest. Irrespective of what you think, this seed is going to be the biggest. And the people at this point are not convinced. The Jews who are following were saying, but this king is gentle and meek. What's going to come out of this kingdom? In fact, they'd be even more disappointed when they continue to follow him because what's going to await them is the cross, isn't it? That's definitely not success in the kingdom. And so, heaven's perspective of this, we must hold on to that. When Jesus died and he rose, people didn't see all of that. But heaven's already pictured that in the Old Testament as well. And I was thinking of Psalm 2. Familiar to some of us, when you go back and you read it, you remember the psalm there that is, we think it's about David, but it's really not. It's speaking about one who will come from the line of David saying, why do the nations conspire? Why do the kings plot against your anointed one? And he goes on a little further in verse 6 to say, but I, and God says, I have installed my king on Zion. And then he goes on to say, he will, today you've become my son and today I have become your father. What is this day speaking about? And Jesus rose with, with authority in a new sense, that the man and God Jesus Christ now was inaugurating the kingdom, all the scripture was pointing to was fulfilled. He says, you will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And Jesus was saying, this is going to happen. In other words, the kingdom will entrench everything. Each one of us, every person's citizenship is going to be decided by this kingdom, whether you like it or not. You're either in or you're out on one day, isn't it? No passports that we'll hold. And so every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on one day, whether you like it or not, and they will see this king exalted. And Jesus says, that's, the, that's what this tree is going to turn out like. And in fact, he says, this tree is also like a, a one where birds will come and perch themselves on its branches. And he just heard that as a parable. But if you're familiar with Jewish literature, with our Old Testament, then you know Jesus is actually alluding to different parts of the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time to dig into it. But if you go back and you look at Daniel 4, you will see this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has of a tree. And when Daniel interprets that vision, it is, that is the biggest tree, it's the most significant one. Other nations will come and even look at it and they will support it. It's Babylon. And very similar language when you go on even in Ezekiel about Assyria and about Egypt, about mighty kingdoms. But let me draw your attention to one text in between all that that uses the same language but speaks of the messianic kingdom that will come. So I'm reading from Ezekiel 17 and 23. On the high mountain, God says, I'll plant this tree. It'll become a stately cedar, and birds of every kind will nest on it. They will nest in the shade of its branches, and all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. Same imagery, but speaking of the kingdom that'll come. And to us, it's not just imagery, isn't it? We're living at a time now where we've seen Christianity grow to be actually the biggest religion that's around us. I use the word carefully, religion. We really don't know the size. But it's it's the biggest movement visibly to us at this point in time. And and so we understand what Jesus is saying. It's come to pass. Look around and you can see that, isn't it? This this has become so big. that so many of you whose forefathers were probably idolaters, who didn't know God, who were atheists, from different tribes and different nations come together. And that mustard seed has become what entrenches all of life. There's much more left to come. And so when we read that and we see, okay, now we understand what Jesus is speaking about, but we also look at that in its context. That's a bigger context of the Bible, but what's the immediate context? Jesus isn't just randomly throwing out these statements. We looked at what he said last week. There was a crippled woman who came and she was healed during Sabbath. And if you recall the response of those on the Sabbath, even the synagogue ruler, despite him healing, looked at her and said, you know, nice stuff, but don't make this a habit. Mm -hmm. Don't come back. Uh, On Sabbath again, if you want to come back, there are other days of the week. And you realize it's just unbelievable they missed out on this good news and this grace. They missed out seeing Jesus as the fulfillment. They were so blinded by their religion, they just didn't get what grace was about. And so, in that context, what, what what is happening at that point in time is this is the Sabbath is a specific day, it's going to be set apart. And here are the rules on Sabbath. Some of us might have an equivalent of that on Sunday. I've got to go to church, it's a rule, and I've been taught, and this day I will not do X, Y, and Z. But what was Sabbath actually pointing to? We've been reminding ourselves in different passages. Right? right from Genesis, there's a pattern where God is showing us saying, you know what, you rest in God, you delight in God, and from there you go about your work. That one day of resting must shape everything else that we do. That one day of fellowship, fellowshipping with God significantly more than we can do on other days, must impact the other days or the six other days that you work, that you do your work, is anyway for God, and you're living in the kingdom, and you're waiting for that day where you can take off and say, I want to spend time with God, I want to read, I want to praise, I want to come and worship God. It's supposed to entrench everything, and in that context, Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God is like that. It is to entrench all of life, and so there's two ways in which the kingdom of God spreads powerfully. One is like we said, It was a death of an insignificant person, a 33-year-old man, not so far from here in Jerusalem. And all of us are gathered here because of that man's death. And in another sense, Jesus says, "But the kingdom is also entrenched, must also completely occupy your hearts and your lives. Kingdom first must be a reality, right? Because the people, the Jews, didn't get it. And so in the context as an application for us, it's not just about Christianity spreading, but what is my response to how I think of kingdom first? Does that shape everything that I do today? That's a question for you to ask yourself. Those are easy parables, isn't it? And kids, if you're listening, you can actually try this. You can go home or you can sit with your Sunday school teachers and plant a little mustard seed. Or you can get a little yeast when your mom makes appam or spreads it into some sort of dough. And you can say, wow, that's what it's like. And then you can sit with your parents and say, "Well, that's a good illustration. Can what does it look like in our house now? What is how does the kingdom entrench everything that we do?" And I'll leave that discussion with your parents. So you think of that, and think of all that we've been listening to, the number of sermons that we've been listening to, your daily reading that's happening, and you know, is this true? Is the nature of the kingdom entrenching my life completely? Do I feel like that man who actually found, that merchant who found the pearl, and he said, I'm going to exchange this for anything. This is precious. This is valuable. This is why I raise my kids. This is why I go to work. This is why I delight in God. So that's uh, that's the tone in which we understand this text. And in the heels of that text, Jesus brings out this parable to them. And when you consider these two aspects, that's how the kingdom spreads, around us, and within us. And it's actually difficult to see the growth of Christianity, isn't it? Because the visible church is easy to count, but the true invisible church of Jesus comes back for, those numbers are not going to add up. And Jesus goes on to clarify that in the text ahead after this. And so when we think of, okay, that's the nature of the kingdom, we want to respond to that saying, is that true in my heart? And the way we understand the nature of the kingdom is when we now follow the king and look at the manner in which he inaugurates the kingdom and what he says about what kind of people will populate this kingdom. And each one of us want to be there. And so look at the second part that he moves to. We saw the nature of the kingdom, but look at the heart of the king. In verse 22, there's just one sentence there. And Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. At this point, we know that's more than just a sentence. We've been seeing this for a while. We've seen, how the, we've seen Luke actually give us a parable now, saying, hey, this is how it spreads. But he's also painting a picture saying, do you know how this spreads? Jesus has been going from town to town, preaching. That's how the gospel is spreading. And think about it, as he goes around, there's increasing opposition, isn't it? Right up, the first time he preaches at the synagogue in chapter 4, they want to throw him over the cliff. Closer to this passage in chapter 11, with their miracles, the leaders come and say, you're actually operating by the power of Satan. It couldn't get worse. But yet, constantly what grips us is this compassion and his resolute desire to press on. Jairus' daughter, let's go, let's heal her. The centurion servant, I'll come with you. Or the crippled woman, you don't even have to ask, let me reach out to you. The crowds are hungry, I want to feed them. And he keeps moving on like this. And you can see grace flowing through the streets of Galilee towards Jerusalem. And what people are going to do is even though they see this, like John described it in John 1.14, Jesus was full of grace and truth. When people see that, they don't like this truth. And so they're going to nail truth and grace on the cross. They're going to try and attempt stopping this king. But the gospel is unstoppable. Because from Emmanuel's veins will flow forth forgiveness and redemption to all of us all over the world. So Jesus continues to press on. He knows that's going to happen. And at that point in time, maybe because of the specific ministry, this ministry was unique when you think about it. Because he's not just moving with compassion. He's at the same time going against all opposition because he will not dilute the truth. I've never seen a ministry like that. We want to. In our own lives or everywhere that I've been to, you either swing increasingly towards grace, you dilute the truth, or you're so delighted in the truth that you just don't know how to be graceful. But when there's a ministry like this, you have questions like this. You Notice what the person comes and asks. Because, okay, he's so compassionate, but there's people not following, there's hatred as well. Not only a few people going to be saved. Because what you're teaching isn't some mushy stuff, isn't come to me, you can come if you have any need, you can follow me. It's pretty different when he invites people, isn't it? In fact, have you ever had an altar call like this when someone says you, you want to come to Jesus, make every effort to enter because many will try and if a few will, like I would have turned away from that altar call. But we don't see discipleship programs like that. We don't see this tone of invitation. We rarely hear that. But that is how Jesus speaks over here. And maybe when you read this, you're wondering, you know, what do I make out of this? If we look back in scripture, this is not new. He always spoke like this when people came to him. So much compassion, but not a denial of what discipleship actually looked like. I hey, let, let's lead a book together. That's easy. But you remember when the teacher of the law came and said, I will follow you wherever you go. We've run that a long time back. And he turned to him and said, well, okay, you can sign up for my theology class, but here's what you need to know as well. I don't know why you're so interested. Do you like all the, I want to go to that church and this fellowship because teaching is good. And he says, that is great. But by the way, if you start following me, a son of man has no place to lay his head. Which means it will impact your life. And your lifestyle will be dependent like I am dependent on the Father. Very rare to get discipleship programs like that, isn't it? Ours are so comfortable. And so Jesus calls out the truth over here. And so when he says that, this person asks a question. Saying, okay, this is not theory. What do I do? And, And am I encouraged when I hear this? Many people will try and only a few will enter. Is that even right theology, by the way? Let me just call out an observation there that's not very obvious in English. When he says, make every effort, strive to enter, the question that is actually asked over there by the person before that is, Lord, are many, how many people are actually being saved? Now the Greek emphasizes the tense, and so I looked up other passages and it had the same. So for example, in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the numbers and to those who are being saved. Like 1 Corinthians 1:18, 1, "The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, to those who are being saved. Do you see? We are saved and we're being saved, and we will be saved, and all those three are true. And so when Jesus says this, the question that he's asking, the persons question is, "Lord, when were these people saved? Because the Jewish mindset is, everybody saved, we're going to the kingdom anyway." But he listens to this teaching, and Jews don't like it, and he says, "How many people are being included into your kingdom?" And so for us, it's the same question. The question is not really about 2010, your altar call and you said, I welcome Jesus into my life. But every time you listen to the Lord after that, in your quiet time and in church and your community groups, how are you responding? Are you being saved? That's a critical part of it. Now, I don't have a date when I was saved. Some of you have and that's great. That's not a bad thing at all. But I don't have a date. But I definitely know several periods and even now where I'm being saved. But the fascinating part is I still know the end outcome, not because I'm better than you. I still know I will be saved. And so what the gospel does is you will be saved. But by the way, that assurance and that assurance actually fuels my sanctification today. You see, the, the question that Jesus is asking, because Jesus doesn't say, that's a bad question. Don't say being saved because one's saved forever saved. He doesn't jump to Calvin there. True, that might be true, but he wants to address a critical question that's on your heart saying, hey, what about this? He's actually not denying Ephesians 2.8. We're saved by grace through faith. But the question is, what about Ephesians 2.10? Didn't God create you? Aren't you workmanship in Christ for a purpose, for good deeds? What does that look like today when you're following me? And she was breaking down a false sense of assurance because he cared for these people. So when you think of that, you read that and you say, okay, this sounds familiar. This is from Scripture, like Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is a critical response of one who has entered the kingdom. That is a mark of one who's entered. Entering the kingdom in that manner. And this is so important for us, I think, during a season like this. Because there's an increasing trend lately. Right doctrines, you know it. I got it. I'm a believer once and for all. Maybe. Maybe. But if you've got it here, then it has to show in our lives. Is the kingdom entrenching? All of my heart and how I respond. And that is the focus over here this morning. As you think of that, many make every effort to enter. Many will try. You notice the words, many will try? And I, that's, that should be easy for you to relate to, especially in a pluralistic society that you live in, where it's almost culturally improper to say truth is only absolute. But we know what the Bible says. It's not that wishy-washy stuff about all roads go up the mountaintop. It's impossible. That's not logical. And so when you hear the only God and the only truth, the only way, He it says, it's me. It's my son. But for us, I'm not so sure, though I have been shocked several times in the past about people in church saying, no, I think that guy is good and he can go to heaven without Christ. But I think the greater focus for us may be, We're sure that Jesus is the only way, but what about this, make every effort, strive to enter, that might be our struggle. And by the way, the word there, strive to enter, when you translate it, is to agonize, is to labor, is to fight, is to use every nerve in your being to enter. And is it what you and I do when we listen to God's word? Because he says, this is a narrow way, do you see that? It's this door is narrow, just like in Matthew 7. There's a narrow path, speaking about salvation. Why? Because when you follow Jesus, it might feel like a highway. In fact, Isaiah says that in Isaiah 35.8. There's a highway of holiness, but only a few will tread on it. The unclean won't. And so when you follow Jesus and you keep following him now, you realize it gets narrow because where is he going? You go and you follow him and he ends up at Golgotha. And when you come to Golgotha, you don't just look at the cross and sing songs about it. If you're responding to Jesus, you realize you have to get on the cross as well. You say, this is not easy. And so when you follow Jesus and you say, make every effort, you say, Lord, I've been striving all these years and it's been about me. But now I will strive with the fact that you've loved me and I'm precious. And now I'm going to strive against that pattern. It doesn't matter what people think. I'm so preoccupied about what people think about me and how I look and what I talk and what my position is and how ministry is and whatever you do. I so say, Lord, now I will strive with all my being to put to death that person that you died for. And that is a striving that God is reminding us of here. Agonize, wrestle, labor, make every effort. I can think of the number of things that I've made so much, I've put so much effort into when I want to get into places specifically, whether it's a concert or whether it's a specific place in an organization. I was thinking of several examples. I remember one vividly. This was more than two decades back, um, just after my marriage so with my newlywed and two other friends of mine we're driving out and I had to go to this concert even though it was a working day. So from Chennai to Bangalore, drive out, you have to get there within five and a half hours and on the way, long story short, have a pretty solid accident, the radiator is broken, uh, the brakes have stopped working as well, but I'm 40 kilometers away from the city and I said we still have to go. So I actually turned the car around without any air conditioning, without a brake, trying to use the handbrake, drove it all the way home, parked it in its broken state, and I said, doesn't matter, we'll figure out insurance later, we have to get our seat there. So we ran, saying there's a train that leaves in half an hour, jumped into the train, bought unreserved tickets. Now, if you've been in India, and you know the Indian railways, you know an unreserved ticket really explains make every effort. And so we got into that, and... uh, uh, I won't describe the horrors of that compartment, but we got through, we landed over there, we got an auto, and we got to Palace Grounds, this big place where the concert was happening, and we had to wade through crowds, finding which entrance do we get to. All that, not even to get on time, and all that just to listen to some guy called Brian Adams who didn't understand anything about the kingdom, at least then, because he was singing about, maybe when you're in my arms, it's hard to believe I'm in heaven. What are the things that you've strived for? Maybe a cricket match over here. I've been for that with some of you. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. That's my seat. I have to get there before that over starts. Or at your workplace, staying up till eight, till nine. Or maybe it's some university admission. Saving and planning and striving. And God's saying, wait, that's great. Where's all this ending? This mustard seed, it might look insignificant when you come in on Sundays. One day, there's just one path. And if all that you do now is not dovetailing in that direction, it's pointless. And so the question is, which side of the door will you be on? Because casual seekers will not find God. I heard this 15 years back and I realized I was definitely in that category. And I'm still worried sometimes. Many will try. You look at the first generation in Israel, how many tried? It doesn't fit the category. Few will enter. Two entered. And repeatedly, interestingly, so I looked this up and in Numbers 14 and again in Deuteronomy 1, Moses is reminding them, guys, nobody entered. But you know why Caleb and Joshua did? Because they followed the Lord and they sought him wholeheartedly with all their heart. It wasn't a mustard seed. Everything that they did was about the kingdom. And for us too, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 2, 11. or the greatest commandment. Mark twelve thirty. love the Lord with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind. And if you don't, and time is short because look at the next verse. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. You cannot read this and not think of another door that was shut like this. When Noah, with the spirit of Christ, was still pleading through Noah, saying, please, get in. And he dismissed the old man week after week. When the waters rose, when it got to their ankles and it got to their knees, you can imagine family standing outside and banging the door saying, please open it. But God shut the door. And who's shutting the door here? It's God shutting the door again. And these people are standing outside and they're pleading. And Luke who's presenting Jesus who came to seek and save the lost is also presenting him in this manner. Saying there's coming a time and the time is short. So we don't just look at the nature of the kingdom, and we don't just look at what the heart of the king is like, but this text primarily is focusing on who's entering the kingdom. And so there's a few different ways in which we can do that. There's four ways, actually, in which we can do that. Um, Looking outside the door, looking inside the door, and looking within. And you're probably going, he's got four points coming now. Don't worry, I'm conscious of time. I'm just hoping you're not too conscious about it. So we'll go through it quickly. The first one on which side of the door will you be on? The first one would be looking outside. She so you look outside the door and what do you see? People saying, we ate and we drank with you. and But Jesus saying, I don't know you or where you come from. You see, unlike experiences over here, nothing, get, nothing else gets you in over there. Sometimes your status gets you into certain places over here. I work there. And I can get VIP tickets. Or I'm a member of that club. But when you reach the gates of heaven, what are you going to say? I was a member of Senna Church. I say, sorry, which church was that? You haven't done our website? It's got all the right doctrines on it. I'm sorry, we've been looking at your heart. We don't see any in it. And so these people are in shock. And we remind ourselves of this harsh reality that fellowship with people does not really imply that your fellowship with God is right. And so we must make this place what it's about and not reduce it to anything else. And so you... It's people on the inside that Jesus is speaking to. Because he comes in and he says it throws them out. So these are people are thought they were in. And he says he's, he's going to shut that door. And look at, interestingly, what these people say. They say, we ate and we drank with you. Why? Because what is celebrated the most in fellowships when you fellowship with other people? Eating and drinking. Not that it's bad. What's the first thing on your mind when you leave from here? Where do we do brunch? It's not bad at all. But do you sometimes leave from here saying, wait, I don't know if I'm striving. But I want to use breakfast. I want to, before the end of the day, talk to somebody. I don't want to have shallow fellowships anymore. I see this brother isn't striving. Do you leave constantly thinking of these realities that God is pointing us to? If you don't, then look at verse 28. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Notice the words, when you see. Before they were speaking, they were pleading, saying, Lord, open the door for us. We were there. And now they're not even talking. All pleading is over. The door is shut. And now they actually see something. What do they see? What they see is shocking. They see some Jews on the inside, but they themselves left out. They see their forefathers on the inside, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and some others, I would guess. But they are left out. And so there's gnashing of teeth. We knew this. The law was ours. God chose us. And now we can see we missed it. You see, that gnashing of teeth is almost like you come out of an examination and all the while maybe you thought there's that one portion. And I hope it doesn't come and I know I'm not going to study it. And that's what comes on your paper. And then you gnash your teeth and you said, I have a chance, but now I've not made it. But here you can't repeat your paper. This is worse than that. And so you keep this in mind. And I don't know... When you think of your life and you're saying, Lord, what kind of striving is going on in my life? Which side of the door am I on? Don't just use scripture to console yourself. Use scripture to let the Lord test your heart and see whether you are striving, making every effort. Because entry through this door isn't really an indication. Ent- this, entering through this door is great and we want to, but that is no assurance about whether we'll get through that door eventually. And I don't know what you think when you see increasingly people come in in the recent months. Maybe your mind is preoccupied with there's no space when we stand outside there after service. Or how many chairs we need to lay. But I'll tell you what's on my heart and I, and I trust it's on many of your hearts as well. I actually get a whole lot of mixed emotions saying, Lord, if you're adding to numbers and actually this is your problem because we have no clue how we're going to deal with this. Because to strive and to walk alongside each person takes a lot. And then you Think of Israel. So many people got off on the journey, but many in idolatry and sexual immorality, and they didn't get home. In fact, even Moses, their leader, had to stand outside the promised land because he was a sinner too. And you read all that, and then you realize, this is actually about God. This is not about people. And so what we need today is men and women who realize this is about God. This is not about us. Because when you realize that, you find your assurance there, and at the same time, you don't take it lightly. You realize God will take us home. He's promised us, but you never casually bark on that journey. And that is what I see. I see a word of assurance because when they see, what do they see? They see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do those names remind you about? And so we were looking outside, and our second part is looking inside. Look at who's inside over there. When you look outside, he said, those people are evildoers. When you look inside, it doesn't say these people were perfect men. Interesting, isn't it? And I went back, though I knew this, and I glanced through the pages of Genesis to think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's pretty obvious. Though Abraham had the promise, and though he saw God walk through the cut pieces, though he went up Mount Moriah, he still had a couple of seriously big blunders there. Almost trying to compromise the whole covenant, saying, now I'll try try this with Sarah. Or trying to pretend Sarah was a sister when he met the king. But he was in And the same with Isaac. I actually read through that and pretty disappointing. There wasn't much there. But I looked at chapter 26 that had something about his life and really nothing about Isaac. But there's two references to the covenant of God and that's what saw him through. And the same with Jacob. Like in Genesis 28, 15, like a lot of you experience, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. That's what got Jacob home. That's what got Israel home. And you realize this is about grace we've been listening to the gospel of grace repeatedly, repeatedly. Are you striving to enter? Are you making every effort like those men who responded? But these men on the outside who are standing there, they just had association with fellowships. So we ate and we drank. What they're not saying is, Lord, we repented, we heard this, we will strive, we will not live like that, none of that. We were there. We had some sort of association with you, Lord, in church and in fellowships. And God says, I don't know you. And in 28, he says, they were all in, but you yourselves will be thrown out. Who's he speaking to? To the Jews. That is shocking to the Jews because some were in, but not all were in. Almost like what we read in Romans 9, 6, all that descended from Israel and not Israel. So did God make a mistake then in choosing the Jews? Was God's word failing? And Paul goes on to say, no. Here's a fascinating truth. It is this rejection of the Jews and God's sovereign plan that actually will get the Gentiles, you and I, to come in because the gospel spread out. It just wasn't Judea and Samaria, but it went to the rest of the world. Okay, so what happens to that? It gets even more fascinating when you go back. You can go back and you read from 9 to 11 in Romans and you say, but look at God's plan. Grace hasn't stopped even there. The Jews will reject him. The Gentiles will come in. And what about the Jews? Were we just puppets in his plan? No. God's grace is again extended to them. I'll read to you from Romans eleven twenty-five. 25. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles have come in and so all Israel will be saved. It's going to be a massive turning around of Jews as well later. And so the point of me calling out this text is whether you look inside or you look outside, you see the richness of the gospel. Which side of the door are you in? Because you can read all that. And it's critical that we must also look within. So we look outside, we look inside, and then we quickly want to look within. Now when I say look within, I want to point out verse 30, which is, indeed those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. That's pretty obvious. Okay, the Jews were in, and they were out, they rejected him, the Gentiles came in, and those who are last were first. We get it, Jesus. But this is just not an observation of how the kingdom comes to grow. This is also about how the king goes about it and the manner in which the king models how he inaugurates the kingdom. Because when you read last and first, how did the king demonstrate that in his life? Even though he was the greatest, he became the least. And so that's the invitation for us to strive alongside. You're included. It's not just some theology about how the Gentiles came in, but do you see how the king got you in? Is that reflected in your life? Yes, Lord, I want to be the least amongst all. I trust that that's what most of your resumes look like. When you go in for an organization, is there anything where I can be the least amongst all? Not in a literal sense, and I'm not saying it's bad to do different kinds of work that God has called you to do, but is that truth about the kingdom shaping everything that you do today? And then you look at this text and say, make every effort. You look outside, and you see people eating and drinking, the shallow fellowship. We don't want that. We don't want the whole, brother, how are you? Sister, how are you? But I'm not going to talk about whether I'm striving and whether you strive. Let's have a meal together. We don't want that. And you look on the, those who are inside, and they're not in because they were any better. They were inside because of the finished work of Christ, but they're full of gratitude and their lives were all about Jesus. Even though they were fallen, they responded to Jesus. And so finally, I want to close by just looking ahead. We look inside and we look ahead, and I want to just draw attention again to verse 29. "People from every tribe and feast, tribe will come and feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob." When you read that text, do you long to be there? Don't you want to see what John the Baptist looks like? Don't you want to walk with Mark? Don't you want to talk with Timothy? I want to sit with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And actually have a discussion with him and talk with him. And imagining within the boundaries of scripture, if I would meet Abraham and I'd say, what was it actually like for you to see God move through those pieces and you just looking at all of that? What was it like when you went up Mount Moriah and you were asked to sacrifice your son and you saw a ram that God provided? And maybe he would say, I was precious, that was incredible. But trust me, I had no idea of what was coming up. But now I get it. Now I can see the lamb who was slain. And maybe I'll talk to Isaac and say, I've got the same first name as well. And I messed up, but you did mess up too. In fact, like father, like son, you did the same sin that Abraham did. Didn't you learn from that? By the way, what was it like when you went up Mount Moriah and he said, he lay me on the altar and I heard Yahweh's voice. I said, don't lay a finger on that boy. I knew God's love and I saw God's substitute provision of the ram, but had no clue that God himself would be slain. Pretty different, uh, can't be any different when you talk to Jacob, isn't it? He said, man, I was trying to run away from God. And I saw angels ascending and descending in my dream. And my wildest dream did I think that God himself would descend to such a point. But now I see and he would point to, to the Lamb of God. And so when every tribe and every nation gets there, every celebration would revolve around the slain, risen Lamb of God. And so when you and I hear the invitation today, and you see Jesus press on to the cross, what is your response going to be? Would you take the words, make every effort to enter the the kingdom seriously? Yes, making every effort is not the criteria. It's a finished work of the cross who gets there. But anyone who is truly entering the kingdom, it's a mark of that person. It is a fruit of that person. It is a natural response of a person who truly knows who died for them and what awaits them. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.